You're listening to the Wild Voices Project, and today I'm speaking to Debbie Payne, the Director of Conservation for the Wildfowl and Wetland Trust. In our conversation, we cover not only her childhood passion for wildlife, but also the power of science to help us to understand and discover new things about birds and design strategies that can help us save them. And she's got some pretty awesome tales about the people that she's met and the places that she's been. The Wild Voices Project podcast tells the stories of people saving nature. We're a part of Wild Voices Media, a global production team bridging emerging storytellers with aspiring environmental professionals. You can find out more about us at wildvoicesproject.org and learn more about the global community at wild-voices.org. Let's jump in. That's recording. Um, so um, we'll start where I always start, which is by asking what role wildlife and nature played for you growing up, if any. Uh, wildlife and nature were incredibly important to me when I was growing up. From the age of, I would say, about six or seven. Mm-hmm. So my first experience, uh, really, that I remember with wildlife was when I was actually probably actually five in my parents' garden and I managed to hand tame a robin. Oh wow. And that was just absolutely magical. Yeah. And the next thing was when I was about seven at school I had a fantastic teacher called Mr Lewis, I still remember his name, and he stopped a class to take us all outside very quietly because there was a flock of linnets outside. And he said if you're really quiet and you tiptoe outside you'll see these amazing little birds and we actually got quite close. And it was just so magical, I think, because we had to be really slow and really quiet, and it stopped the lesson as well, which is a real plus when you're a little kid. And I went home and said to my parents, right, I want a bird book, I want binoculars. <laughs> <laughs> and then when I was a little bit older, I lived quite near Sandwich Bay Bird Observatory. Mm-hmm. There was a really nice chap there, Mr Bachelor, and he took myself and some of my friends out, and I found my first skylark's nest. And So I think wildlife, and particularly birds, were incredibly important to me. You know, from really quite an early age, and then that just grew, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so. And hand taming that robin—that must have been quite a labour of patience, I suppose. Yeah, I think it probably was. I'm an only child. Yeah. Um, and so I spent a lot of time in the garden, kind of messing around on my own. Yeah. Actually, my first wildlife experience was probably when I was about three or four eating a worm in the garden, but that's probably not something that I generally tell people. <laughs> <laughs> I got told off for that one. <laughs> but they're the things that stick in your mind. I thought the worm was okay, but I didn't much like the grit and mud on it. So, <laughs> But, yeah, from a, from a very, very early age. And so did you grow up in Sandwich Bay's in Kent? It's in Kent. So I grew up in Ramsgate right. in Kent, which is quite near Sandwich Bay. Yeah. yeah. And so was the kind of landscape of Kent and some of the special places, was, was that something that influenced you? Were they places that you got out to visit as you were growing up a bit older? or? Yeah, so Kent's really quite a nice county for a whole bunch of different species. Um, and in fact, a lot of the reserves I visited in Kent, some are good for birds, but actually loads are good for orchids. Mm. It's a really good county for orchids. Okay. So I'm into all wildlife. Yeah. I particularly like birds, but I really like mammals. I also like butterflies, dragonflies, orchids, you know, pretty much anything. Yeah. And Kent has wonderful reserves for orchids and wildflowers. Um, so when I go down to visit my parents, we tend to go out looking at kind of butterflies and plants. Uh, whereas here in Cambridgeshire, I do a lot of bird watching, mm. I guess, because this is where I live. So. Yeah, Kent's one of the counties that I think I've explored least, actually. Mm. You know, even somewhere like Dungeness, that's seen as quite iconic. Yeah. I've never made it to yet, so... Yeah, places like Dungeness are great. Uh, a whole bunch of nice places in Kent. Yeah. And places very close to Kent as well, so... And was it just an interest in wildlife that you had growing up, or did you did you start to develop a sort of, um, you know, my experience was that the interest in wildlife came, and then shortly after that, I I became really interested in the idea of saving the environment. Was that something that was there for you, or did the idea of working in conservation come a bit later on? So I'm trying to remember what age I got really interested in conservation. I've, I'm interested in wildlife from a very young age. I do know that I was really into the RSPB mm-hmm. when I was a, a young teenager. Yeah. And I distinctly remember that when I was 18 and you filled out what was called an UCCA form at the time, it's, you know, which university do you want to go oh, to yeah. and what do you want to do when you grow up? You had yeah. to write on it as well, something along those lines. 
and I remember writing I want to work for the research department of the RSPB so before the age of 18 I already knew that I wanted to do that but yeah. I don't actually remember what age you asked me earlier about local reserves in Kent one mm. that was very important to me was Stodmarsh. Okay. So I used to do a lot of birding at Stodmarsh. Right. There weren't that many sites that I birded when I was very young, but Stodmarsh is one I could persuade my parents to take me to and eventually went to on my own. Was that and because that of particular really birds there? or? Yeah, it was at the time, I remember it being a fantastic site for bearded tit. Mm. And it also had jetties warblers, which weren't widespread then. They were really quite rare yeah. when I was growing up, so not like now. Um, there were a couple of glossy ibis there for quite a few years. Oh wow! Okay. Um, so there were some really special things that you could go there and see when I was, you know, quite a young birder. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, and so you say by the age of eighteen, you knew you wanted to work for the RSPB's research department. Mm. And then you went on to do that, right? I did indeed. <laughs> <laughs> My life's been charted out. <laughs> yeah, I did. I, um, I did my degree, which was an environmental chemistry degree. Mm -hmm. And that was basically because I was really into wildlife. But when I was at school, because I'm in my mid-50s now, so it's quite a while ago, um, I was told that if you wanted a job, you needed to do you know, hard sciences. You needed to do physics and chemistry and maths. So I ended up doing chemistry, biology and maths. Yeah. And so I did an environmental chemistry degree, and at the end of that, I had a very, very good bit of advice from my kind of supervisor when I was a degree student who said, now is the time to decide with your heart, not your head. Okay. So, but did you enjoy the science as well? I loved the science, yeah. and I wanted to do a PhD, yeah. and I was offered a whole bunch of different PhDs and cancer research and all kinds of things, which I was interested in. But he said, no, go with your heart. And I said, I really want to work on birds. That's yeah. what I really want to do. That's yeah. what I'm passionate about. And he said, oh, I know this chap, Professor Chris Perrins at Oxford, and they've got a load of work going on lead poisoning in birds. And that's, you could kind of mix birds and chemistry. So, you know, why don't you contact him? And I contacted him and I managed to get a thing called, I think it was an appeal award because I got a, I got a good first degree yeah. um, you could apply to get the money to do a PhD and choose your own PhD and I managed to get a grant to do my own PhD and so Chris Perrin said yeah you can come and do whatever you want so I worked on lead poisoning in birds and spent the first few months working out exactly what I wanted to do and then had a fantastic time at Oxford doing a PhD on the biochemistry of lead poisoning in birds. <laughs> Had people done much research on lead poisoning in birds at that stage before? Uh, a bit, it was just starting so there was a lot of research going on at Oxford on lead poisoning in swans from anglers weights. Mm -hmm. uh, so there are a bunch of people working on that so Chris ran a research group on that very good friend of mine, Jane Sears, was working on that. Mm -hmm. A couple of other people that had worked on that. But I worked on lead poisoning from gunshot rather than spent anglers' weights. And there was research. There's been quite a lot of research in the States and a bit in the UK, but not huge amounts. So, yeah. um, and particularly the biochemistry was the thing I specialised in. What were, what were some of the findings of your PhD? So I was, I was developing a method um, that could be used quite easily with fairly basic and cheap equipment for looking at whether or not a bird was lead poisoned from taking a blood sample. So uh, rather than having a big chemistry lab mm. and using atomic absorption to do a lead analysis, which at the time was a quite expensive thing to do, I developed a method that was based on a blood enzyme called delta amino levulinic acid dehydratase. <laughs> there you go, that's a mouthful. <laughs> And the activity of that enzyme is inhibited by lead right. in proportion to the amount of lead in the blood. Mm -hmm. And so I was developing a specific method where you could use a colorimetric method, just a very basic method, to actually look at whether a bird was lead poisoned or not. And looking at a whole range of other blood parameters that were affected by lead. And I did that at Oxford, but also contacted the US Fish and Wildlife Service because only okay. two labs in the world had to the best of my knowledge at the time, ever worked on this enzyme in birds. One was in Japan and one was the US Fish and Wildlife Service. Don't speak Japanese. So I contacted <laughs> the US Fish and Wildlife Service. and Wildlife Service and they said, yeah, come over. Come over for six months. Oh, and, great. Okay. And they set up a lab for me in the Chesapeake Bay in an old hunting lodge with all of the equipment I needed with tanks of liquid nitrogen. And I went out and caught ducks with 
some, some really great people from kind of the wildlife service. Mm. Uh, a guy called Steve Dawson, whose house I actually shared, who really helped me trap ducks and I developed my methods and worked with the Fish and Wildlife Service and I have friends there to this day. They were absolutely wonderful. So I went over for two years and spent about three months each for two years of my PhD with them. So it was a really formative experience for me. It was yeah. great. And it's not an it's an area that I follow a little bit through through my reading about conservation stuff. Lead poisoning in birds is still something that we're a finding out about, but also I suppose perhaps more b trying to get the right policy and legislative changes on to prevent some of the harm that's happening. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. So we've had a law in, in England since 1999 banning the use of lead ammunition for shooting. Um, wildfowl or yep. over listed wetlands um, and the law is a bit different between the different UK countries but there are you know there's law in all of the mm. UK countries in um, some in Northern Ireland and Scotland it's for shooting over wetlands uh, it's the same in England and Wales uh, but unfortunately there's very little compliance with that right and right across the European Union a lot of countries have introduced partial legislation uh, but there is relatively limited compliance in many places and the laws aren't very strong everywhere. So at the moment, the European Union, under a process called the REACH process, is trying to harmonise that. And it's got this proposal out at the moment to try and harmonise that and make sure that all of the EU countries have the same kind of regulation. Um, but I think the problem with lead is it's not just a wetland issue. It's an issue for terrestrial birds as well. Yeah. And it's not just lead gunshot, it's also lead bullets, because of course birds of prey, if they eat anything that's been shot with a lead bullet, mm. um, then you know, if, they, if there's grallop, for example, from, from deer that's left on a hillside that's got little fragments of lead from bullet, then any raptors scavenging that can pick it up. It's a problem for a whole range of different birds. Yeah. And it's also um, an issue for people that eat things that have been shot with lead. Yeah. So, um, you know, the Food Standards Agency have produced advice themselves themselves on that, as have similar agencies in other countries, recommending that people that frequently eat things shot with lead should reduce their consumption, and it's particularly a risk for pregnant women and young children, because mm. lead is a neurotoxin. Um, so it's, it's not, you know, it's not a very nice thing, and mm. there are alternatives to lead ammunition that are non-toxic and that are very effective. Yeah. But it's a gradual process, and, you know, a lot of progress has been made, but it's slow. <laughs> yeah. Um, I suppose it's not unique to lead shot or even to conservation, really. Mm. Policy can take yeah. a long time to catch up with the science, can't it? It can, and it varies between countries. In Denmark, in 1996, they banned the use of all lead gunshot and replaced it with non-toxic steel, which works very effectively. And the, the hunters in Denmark would never go back and think we're all crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so... So, it, you know, it's possible. And Netherlands has done the same thing. And, you know, there is strong regulation in certain countries that, that yeah. is complied with. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's a gradual process. And, you know, I think it's moving in the right direction. Mm. But slowly. <laughs> um, and after your PhD, am I right in remembering that you spent some time in France or Switzerland? I did. So after my PhD, I spent four and a half years at the Tour de Valar Biological Research Station in the Camargue in right. the south of France. That sounds all right. It was absolutely <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> it's a fantastic place to be based. Yeah. So um, I really enjoyed that. And that was working on a bunch of different projects. I was working on lead poisoning marsh harriers, right. so birds of prey. Yeah. But I was also working on other environmental contaminants. I was looking at the use of um, using bird feathers like flamingo feathers to look at atmospheric contaminants. I was working on sexual selection, so behavioural ecology and damselflies, a whole bunch of different things. <laughs> and I had a Royal Society European Exchange Fellowship to do that. And again, mm -hmm. it was one of these amazing grants that you get given to do whatever research you want to. So I was incredibly lucky uh, to be able to go over and work there and have a grant to, to just do a load of research and write papers and had lots of students come over and work with me so that was really terrific and be in a stunning setting as well that's a wonderful place i was yeah. out riding Kamar courses every week and <laughs> it was bliss <laughs> the woman i spoke the woman i spoke to for my for the last uh podcast that i did she's a researcher uh, a junior research fellow at oxford university she's okay. working on the migration of manx shearwaters and puffins okay and she grew up in france and she spent a lot of time with, uh, in the Camargue as well mm. 
yeah, just made me quite jealous, really. <laughs> Lots of friends and, and colleagues have actually passed through Tour de Valor. A lot of people mm. go there and spend <laughs> some time there, and I'm not at all surprised. Yeah. <laughs> it is a wonderful place. And so how did you then make the leap to working to, you know, achieving that aim which you'd had in your sights of working for the RSPB's research unit? Well, my, my grant from the Royal Society was a three-year one and I was then paid by the French Environment Ministry, Sreti, uh, for a year. And then I had some money from Tour de Valor itself, but that was sort of coming towards a, an end and I was looking for other jobs, mm. either in France or the UK. And then I saw a job advertised as a research biologist at RSPB. And I kind of had to go for it. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, so that's how that happened. So. And I looked through your list of publications, which was just, it's just prolific. I <laughs> mean, um, I'm not a scientist by training, so I tried to dip into some of them. But what, what is, alongside lead poisoning, what are some of the areas that you primarily focused your research on when you were working in the RSPB research unit, but also elsewhere? So RSPB, a whole bunch of different things, really. So I didn't do very much work on lead poisoning at RSPB, mm -hmm. very little, a uh, little bit. I did um, a lot of work on common agricultural policy and its right. implications for bird conservation and, and did a book on that. Um, a lot of work on endangered species, so threatened species, causes of decline. I did some work on reserve networks, um, how good important bird areas are for overall biodiversity and how to you know, set up reserve networks that are good for overall biodiversity, um, climate change and bird distributions, uh, the bird trade, <laughs> lots of different things. Lots of things. <laughs> uh, yeah, a whole bunch of things. The um, Doniana mining disaster in, in, yeah. in Spain. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, the key thing I did at RSPB, I suppose, was set up um, the International Research Unit. Oh, okay. And run yeah. that for yeah. a long time. Yeah. Um, which is mainly aimed at building capacity, science capacity and bird life partner organisations yeah. around the world, working on the issues that they think are important. Right. So it was helping with those things and helping build that science capacity. So a lot of the work was really work that the bird life partners really wanted to do um, and making sure we could accommodate that and help. And we had PhD students um, that were registered at various different universities uh, doing work in a, in a bunch of overseas countries. So it was great. Have any of the the subjects that you've worked on stood out as particularly important discoveries or just particularly interesting to you? Uh, do you know, everything's interesting to me. Um, one of the things I really, really enjoyed was the vulture work. Right. So um, in discussion with Bombay Natural History Society in, I can't remember what year it was, uh, in the 1990s sometime. Yeah. It appeared that vultures were declining across India and there were anecdotal reports coming in from mm -hmm. right across India. And so talking to their then di director, Asad Romani, we looked at whether or not there had ever been surveys and Vibhu Prakash, one of their principal researchers, had done surveys much earlier, funded by the Fish and Wildlife Service, that we could repeat. So they went out and repeated those and once they'd done that, we realised that the vulture decline had been absolutely massive. You know, over 90%. Mm. Um, and so that started a big vulture project. So from RSPB's perspective, I initiated that. And of course, Bombay Natural History Society was the key organisation. Yeah. And working on that, trying to work out what had caused the declines at the same time as setting up a conservation breeding unit in India, which is what Vivu did, um, so that, you know, birds really were secure it was a safety net it was also an opportunity to study the progression of whatever was killing them but also to build the capacity to do conservation breeding for reintroduction should it be needed because mm. the declines were really rapid it was an organization in fact it was somebody called Lindsay Oakes who was a professor professor from Washington State University working with Peregrine Fund an American organization that finally worked out what was causing the decline, which is diclofenac, mm. a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. We then, they, they did that work in Pakistan. We confirmed that in India. Um, and then I think the really critical thing that we needed to do was find an alternative because diclofenac was a very cheap out of patent and very effective non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. So it was a good painkiller, good anti-inflammatory being given as a welfare drug to old cattle mm. in India because they're sacred, they're not eaten, they're allowed to just die naturally. And we found that, you know, vultures were super sensitive to this drug. 
but we knew we wouldn't be able to get it banned unless we had an alternative that was equally cheap and effective and was safe for vultures. Yeah. So we did a lot of research to try and find an alternative and found one called Meloxicam. And the Indian government were amazing and they banned the veterinary sale of diclofenac incredibly quickly once that had happened. Really, really quickly. When you look at how long it took you know, countries like the UK and others to ban DDT after we knew the effects of it. Yeah. The Indian government moved like that. And, you know, Pakistan and Nepal followed suit. I didn't know that part so of the story, actually. Yeah. It was incredibly quick. You know, hats off to them. They did a brilliant job of that. I mean, it takes longer for that actually to be properly implemented, of course, because you've got stocks in pharmacies and shops all over the country. But, you know, the amount being sold is now dramatically reduced. And vultures are now beginning to, at one stage, they were declining at about 30% a year, I think it was. Yeah. And now that appears to have stabilised. In one species, it might even be turning Because there's three, three key species. There are three that, key species yeah. there. They belong to the Gips genus. Um, and one of those species, it looks like it might be turning a corner. So, so that was, I loved that work. It was incredible. And there were so many... Um, ramifications from it as well in terms of the economic value of vultures to Indian society. So there are probably, you know, ten million or something vultures, huge numbers. Mm. And cattle would die, skinners would come along and take the skin for the leather industry, vultures would come down and pick the bones clean, and they really do pick bones clean. And then bone collectors would come and collect the bones after they dried and that would be used for gum or fertiliser. But when you've just got rotting cattle carcasses, because there are no vultures left, you've got superabundance of food, and the other main scavenger are feral dogs. Mm. So the feral dog population increases, and there's a very high instance of human rabies in India. So that has implications for human health. And so you actually look at the value of the service that those vultures were playing for Indian society, and it's massive. You know, tens of billions of, of dollars over a, a 10 or 15 year period during which vultures declined just from, you know, estimated to be just from increased cost due to increased human rabies. And it's, so, it's it, yeah, it, when, I, when I was doing a lot of talking to members of the public for RSPB, it was certainly a, one of the most interesting stories that I got to tell mm. about the research and then the, the ban on diclofenac and, um, and I also found that B, it was one of the stories that I got to tell that resonated most with the public in terms mm. of the effectiveness of the RSPB's work. But perversely, diclofenac is now, I understand, being brought in in some European countries, oh, right? Unbelievable. It's absolutely unbelievable. So yes, diclofenac can be used, I know, in Spain and Italy. Mm. I know they're two of the countries with the most important Gibbs vulture populations. Uh, are Britain vultures. Yeah. It's ludicrous, it really is. Um, it, it seems ridiculous to me that a lot of the a lot of the funding and the collaboration for the research that took place in India came from the European Union. <laughs> the Indian <laughs> government were fantastic at banning this really quickly. And several years later, when we know exactly what the problems are and the yeah. possible implications, People start using it's, it. it's allowed uh, to be used. <laughs> in yeah. the European Union, which is just ridiculous. Yeah. So, so um, we really need a... That needs to be changed as rapidly as possible and we need a very, very good monitoring system from our, our raptors yeah. to make sure that that's picked up really quickly. When um, vultures die of diclofenac poisoning, they have this thing called visceral gout, which is an accumulation of uric acid crystals over the tissues. It's like a white massive uric acid crystals because their kidneys have failed right basically so people um doing post-mortems of any scavenging birds really need to look out for that and the tissues need to be analyzed for diclofenac and other non-steroidal anti-inflammatories if that's found mm. so having a really good raptor monitoring system is really important it's not just diclofenac it looks as if there are several other nsaids that are possibly uh, not very good as well. Right. Uh, so, you know, we've identified one that's, you know, absolutely appears to be very safe, meloxicam, and there's been a lot of published research on that now, but that's not necessarily the case with all of the others. And is, is, is meloxicam being... Is that permitted in Europe as well? Why, why is that alternative not being used instead when we know that that doesn't have these side effects? Yeah, I mean, I haven't worked on this now for 10 oh, okay. years, so yeah. I'm not totally up to speed with what NSAIDs are currently on the market yeah. in, in uh, Europe. 
I would be surprised if Moxcan wasn't, but I honestly can't tell you. Okay. So. Um, so then, then did you correct me if I'm wrong? You made the jump from RSPB International Research to working for the Wildfowl and Wetland Trust as That's their right. director of conservation. That's right. Yep, yeah. Nine and a half years ago. So. Um, and could you say a little bit more about? you know what it is that drew you to WWT and what you yeah what you do in that role um because I suppose there's a lot more that comes with directing a a department or, or a director I suppose than uh, that works on all of conservation because mm. there's you know policy within that and perhaps some element of communications mm-hmm. than just research and science yeah I, I guess although I was in the research department a lot of the work that we were doing overseas had a lot of policy and legislation implications it wasn't just the science it was then what you did with the science and working with the bird life partners to do that so I was interested in more than just the science interested in actually seeing that used to deliver conservation outcomes Mm. on the ground and that's always the thing that I'm passionate about is seeing the conservation outcomes I'm really really fascinated by science but actually it's conservation outcomes that really matter to me yeah so and however you achieve them no matter what you need to use to achieve them within limits of course (laughs) (laughs) and after I'd been at RSPB for I think it was about 15 and a half years I loved my job there and my team it was absolutely brilliant but when you've been doing something for a really quite a long time I mean I I sometimes feel like I need a bit of a change Mm. and when the job was advertised at WWT it was just really tempting because it was a you know a director's job, it was much broader. They hadn't had a director of conservation, so it was, right, okay. They they'd had a director of research, and and so it was it was you know it was very challenging, and it was very exciting to be able to give it a go. And so I I was very lucky in that both um, the CEO of WWT and also Mark Avery, who was director of conservation at RSPB at the time, allowed me initially to do it as a three-year secondment which was really, really nice of both of them. Yeah. Uh, and then I, I stayed after the three years. Um, and, yeah, it was, it was absolutely terrific. It was wonderful to go into an organisation and, and look at what they were doing yeah. and actually think, well, how much more you know, can we do and how do we decide what we do strategically? And, and I, I found WWT to be an organisation with absolutely fantastically skilled staff in a whole range of areas that almost didn't know how good they were <laughs> so it was it was amazing it was great to take people you know that work with people who were doing conservation breeding to actually take that out into the world and start to save some of the most threatened birds on the planet using their hands-on skills and actually see that develop um, and see those people realize how darn good they were <laughs> so it was it was great really really great so is that um you say wwt hadn't had a director of conservation before is some of that going out to other countries and focusing on the most threatened birds is that one of the things that having that new director role allowed you and the organization to do and are there other new things that you know that new post permitted yeah so that this we had a strategy um that we developed then and that this is going back nine and a half years our strategy is very different now it's evolved since then and we've got a new new strategy that's only just been launched but back then we had a big focus on threatened species so of course peter scott when he started up wwt is famous for saving the nene so that's exactly what he did you know brought some nene over and bred them and you know, got them back and reintroduced Nene. But other than that, there hadn't been anything like that since Peter Scott's days, so, you know, for half a century. Um, and I guess the first thing that seemed very obvious was uh, working on the Madagascar potchard. So this is a species that was thought to be extinct probably twice. Right. So there were some in captivity in the 1930s, no more in captivity after the Second World War. Um, and after the 1960s, none were thought to exist in Madagascar. There were some surveys. None were found until 1992, when a single bird was discovered on Lake Alotra, a big lake in the central uh, plateau, by a hunter, a male bird. That was brought into captivity. That sadly died in captivity. Lots more surveys, no more birds found. So thought to be probably extinct again. Yeah. And then in 2006, I believe, the Peregrine Fund again. So you see, there's a there's a thread here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great organisation. They were working in the remote part of northern Madagascar, 
uh, working on raptors, obviously, they're a raptor organisation, and uh, a guy who worked for them, Lily Aronson, had noticed some ducks on this volcanic lake and one day decided to go and have a look at them. I never Madagascar potchard. <laughs> <laughs> and there were about 25 or so there. So they were rediscovered. Um, and when I arrived at WWT at the beginning of 2008, there had been some surveys, no more birds found, just this one small population on this lake. So it was, it was an obvious thing to start with. Um, so we spoke to Durrell. Mm-hmm. Um, Durrell have got a long history in Madagascar and said, you know, would you like to collaborate with us over trying to find out what the issues are and do something to bring this species back? And so we sent an expedition over there in 2009 Uh, to look at the situation and they found that of these 20 odd birds only six were female so the global breeding population was six pairs on one small remote lake and the team came back and said we really think we need to do something they don't appear to be very productive they're producing ducklings but then they seem to disappear Um, so we think we need to get some in captivity as a safety net and we'll plan to do it next year and I said and what happens if there's a stochastic event this year like a disease or a typhoon or something and they all disappear let's try and do it this year and everybody thought I was totally mad (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but Durrell um, there's a guy called John Farr at the time at Durrell he was totally on board and we actually sat down worked out the logistics and my team worked out the logistics of how we could make it work we managed to get some emergency funding from Mitsubishi I was going to ask how 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 this kind of work was funded yeah uh, so we had a meeting with Why Mitsubishi? Uh, the Mitsubishi Fund for Conservation Fund for Africa and oh, Europe. Okay. So yeah. it's very specific. Right. They came to Slimbridge. Um, our head of conservation breeding got out of Madagascar potchard skin and said, we don't want this to be the only one anyone will ever see. And they were brilliant. They gave us some funding, enough funding to go out and do an emergency rescue. Of course, we couldn't get visas for a very long period, so we had people going out in succession. It was... It was an incredibly adventurous thing to do uh, because the place, the lake where the potchard were is, um, I think it's about 40 kilometres of dirt track. You can only drive it in the dry season and even then it's really tough Right. four wheel drive. You have to walk it in the wet season. And of course, no electricity, no water, nothing like that. So they had to take out, you know, portable battery operated incubators, They didn't have anywhere to bring the birds, but fortunately during their first recce out there, they'd met um, with a vet who with her husband ran a hotel in the nearest place with a a good electricity and water supply. And she said, well, tell you what, we'll give you a bedroom and some room outside to set up like a a temporary center to, to rear your birds. So they managed to get out there. And they planned to be out there quite a long time before the first brood was due to hatch. They had a biologist, Malagasy biologist, watching the birds, watching their behaviour. And they said, right, well, we know things are logistically difficult in Madagascar, so we'll give ourselves a really big window and be there a few weeks early. Mm. And they flew out from Paris to Tana, Antananarivo, the capital of Madagascar. There was a terrible electric storm over Tana everybody being thrown around they couldn't land they had to divert to the nearest airport which was Nairobi so the whole team was stuck in Nairobi for four or five days they then got to Tana and I think a couple of them had swine flu so they were really sick all of their equipment didn't arrive they had to go around Tana buying all of the things that they needed they then kind of got better set off north um, and the only road they could go along, they, um, they were stopped by the fact a bridge was being repaired and there were huge queues of traffic. So they had a couple of days stuck by this bridge and they finally made it up to the lake the day before they estimated that that clutch was due to hatch. Yeah. And of course, if it had hatched, there'd be ducklings over the lake and there's no chance of catching them. So how do you catch a Madagascan <laughs> You <botches>? can't. <laughs> <laughs> so they got there and they woke up, they put their tents up in the dark, got the you know, battery-operated incubators there, woke up the next morning, went out and looked at the lake. First thing they saw was some Madagascar potchard ducklings, three of them. So they thought, oh no, we're too late. Yeah. The second thing they saw was a globally threatened Madagascar harrier come round down and take the three ducklings. 
Word. <laughs> so there's a conservation dilemma. That's for why they you. all kept going. <laughs> but in fact, we found it's not the Harriers that oh, are right, a problem okay. for the ducklings. <laughs> that that was just coincidence. Yeah. I think it was a late breeding season, and the young Harriers just coincided yeah. with the ducklings. So, but of course, we didn't know that at the time. So the team, after all they'd been through, you can imagine how devastated they were. <laughs> And uh, anyway, they said, let's go out on the lake in canoes anyway. And they found another clutch that was about to hatch, which was brilliant. Yeah. So they managed to take that and they got another two clutches. And they got them back to this hotel and reared them in captivity. Fortunately, I think they had about 23 birds. I might be getting my figures slightly wrong. But most of them, about 16 of them were female, which is brilliant because you've then got a captive effective breeding population of 16 pairs. Yeah. Because the males will mate with several females. Yes. <laughs> and so that was brilliant. So that, that started up our conservation breeding program, which developed into, you know, building a proper mini slim bridge in Madagascar. That's now equipped, um, fully equipped. We've got outdoor ponds and aviaries. It's run entirely by Malagasy staff who've been trained in avicultures who are brilliant. Our team don't need to be out there at all. Um, that's run in collaboration with Durrell. Um, so that's great. And the project has now evolved. So the research that took place out there, got a research scientist called Andy Barnford working out there mm-hmm. with Malagasy scientists. We found that the reason that population was so small is that these volcanic lakes are really deep and steep-sided, tiny bits of fringe vegetation, and the adults were diving to feed for a lot longer than the ducklings. And the ducklings, they'd hatch loads of ducklings, and they'd survive for a week, and then they'd just start dying. And they'd practically all disappear, and they couldn't feed. So the lake bottom was too deep for the ducklings to feed, and only one or two of them could get enough food to make it. So it's probably a really suboptimal habitat. So they become isolated to these really poor lakes. And it's it's probably no good at all, but they've hung on there because they're very remote. They're not fished because there are no fish in the lake. They're not used. They don't have introduced invasive species. Um, they're not hunted it's, it's a sacred lake so they've probably just hung on there because it's you know one of the only places they could hang on and they're just the population's just been ticking over with this really small population they can produce you know 100 ducklings in a year but very few of them actually make it but enough to keep the population ticking over so we then knew that we had to find another place to reintroduce them to so started doing big surveys right across the whole of the central highlands of other lakes the lake depths you know, how the lakes are used by local communities, what the invertebrate composition and abundance is, what the fish were, what the constraints might be, and identified one lake called Lake Sophia mm-hmm. in the same region, another very remote lake, um, but quite heavily used, about 12,000 people living in the local villages around it. It's a very large lake, but with really good habitat still on it, even though the surrounding hillsides have been largely deforested. But although it's not in brilliant condition, it's in pretty good condition that could be restored and that had local communities that already had kind of management committees for sort of sustainably managing their lakes. So a really good kind of local infrastructure Mm. to try and manage the lake. So we've been working with a range of partners in Madagascar. So with Durrell still, with actually with the BirdLife Partner Assity in Madagascar, uh, with an organisation, the local branch of the Aga Khan Foundation. Um, So... Work, which is a development organisation with a whole range of organisations, trying to find ways of improving local livelihoods in ways that will benefit the local communities. These are very poor local communities. Again, no water, no electricity, no sanitation, mm-hmm. um, you know, very high infant mortality, uh, but improve the conditions for those local people in ways that also improve the lake for the wildlife on the lake as a potential reintroduction site for Madagascar Potchard. And those measures are going incredibly well. The local community is absolutely on board. A whole range of things are taking place to benefit livelihoods. And we're hoping to do the first reintroductions next year. Oh, wow. Which is amazing. And we've got a very good, you know, breeding population in captivity to enable us to do that. And they're still ticking over at the lake in the wild. But I love that project because it's taken it from a saving one of the world's most endangered species to saving a lake working in a watershed for really true sustainable development that's sustainable for people and for the environment 
because that is the only way to go in the long term. And that work is now cascading out to other sites in Madagascar. And the wetlands in Madagascar are some of the most threatened in the world. And I think, you know, this is really where my heart lies. It's the joining up the habitat, the threatened wildlife and the people. Yeah. And making sure that all of those things work together um, to benefit everything in a really sustainable way. And I love that project and I am so proud of what the team have done on that and the partners that we work with. It's, you know, in my mind, almost the perfect project. It's um, fantastic. So. Yeah, that's an incredible yes. accomplishment. Yeah. And that must that approach that you've developed there, you must have been able to demonstrate that success and then, you know, roll that out to other species in other parts of the world as well. So we're working uh, on a bunch of other species in, in some in similar ways, some in different ways. Yeah. And of course, with RSPB and Birds Russia and a range of other partners, um, we're working on the Spoonbilled Sandpiper along yeah. the East Asian Australasian Flyway. Somewhat different, different kind of project. But again, there's a huge amount of community work that's taken place there, largely because one of the main, one of the two main threats there was trapping on the non-breeding grounds and a lot of this in places like Myanmar and Bangladesh is by very poor local communities they were just trapping waders for food mm. they didn't particularly want to uh, but there's very little else for them to do and so finding alternative livelihoods that are better that are better both in terms of social status and economically better um, has been a really brilliant thing that the whole partnership has done the Spoonboard Sandpiper Task Force um, Arcona we've worked with, a whole bunch of different organisations have contributed to this and and I can't even begin to name the number of organisations along that flyway that have worked on this so it's, you know, it's massive we've, we've been particularly working on the really hands-on stuff on that project, um, conservation breeding and he a thing called head starting as well, I don't know if you know about No, I don't know what that is, I've not heard of it before. So head starting is up in Arctic Russia where Spoonboard Sandpipers breed, Yeah. Um, it's in Chukotka and Kamchatka in Arctic Russia, where the main breeding populations in Chukotka. Um, they have very low productivity, so a pair lays four eggs, but it takes them two years to fledge one chick because predation of the eggs and chicks is very high. Right. And that's quite normal for Arctic breeding waders, and they could probably sustain that if their survival was good. Mm -hmm. You know, during their 8,000 kilometre migration and back, if they survive well, but we found that the young birds had incredibly low survival, so the return rates were very low. And a bit low for adults, but not that low, just a bit low. So something was obviously affecting the young birds. And this is where we realised that trapping on the wintering grounds or the non-breeding grounds is probably a big factor. Yeah. Um, basically because the young birds don't come back until they're two, so they're spending a lot longer on the non-breeding grounds where they're being trapped, which is why... Uh, there was this differential mortality but we thought well what one of the things we can do is try and boost productivity so there are lots more birds by taking eggs into captivity actually on the breeding grounds hatching them in incubators putting them in huge outdoor aviaries on the arctic tundra and then releasing them when they when they fledged so we can produce five times more than the adults can in the wild by doing that because you overcome the predation yeah so, um, so we've been doing that for quite some time now. We've released 111 birds. Wow! And, this and is a, what was the global population when you started? We thought it was about started? 100 breeding pairs. Right. <laughs> so it's that increases their productivity a lot. Yeah. Um, and I think that the work on the non-breeding grounds to reduce trapping, along with boosting that population, has massively slowed the decline of spoonbilled sandpipers, which buys us time to tackle the other threat which is loss of intertidal habitats that they need for feeding during that long migration. Mm. So that's, that project's a bit different. I mean, it's a migratory species, huge number of organisations. Uh, the tackling intertidal wetlands is a really big and difficult issue. You know, lots of advocacy needed on that, lots of organisations working on that. Actually, tackling the livelihoods issue has been fairly straightforward. Basically, it's, it's been a fairly cheap thing to do, and it's not... Trapping waders isn't something that most people really want to do. Yeah. It's got fairly low social status, so finding alternative livelihoods is, is just incredibly beneficial for local communities. And they can be as simple as buying fishing nets or call boxes, so you know fish can be transported from one village to another or to a town to be sold, or setting up market stalls, a whole range of microfinancing. Uh, and a lot of those hunters and trappers are now teachers in schools, teaching people not to trap waders, which is fantastic. Yeah. Um, so that that again is slightly different model, but it's uh, another really nice project, and with you know one of the world's rarest waders.
and those threatened ladies. And these very intrepid and kind of you know groundbreaking projects, focusing on some of the some of the planet's most endangered birds. They seem to also be really good at capturing the public imagination here in the UK as well in terms of media coverage but also generating financial support you know places like bird fair for example amongst the bird watching community yeah. don't they there's nothing like a spoonie to do that it's a bird is bird isn't it yeah, I mean, it is tiny little wader far northeastern russia some people have seen them in thailand and the wintering grounds you know i went out there to twitch my first one a really long time ago on the salt pans in thailand it's, it really is. And it, they are so charismatic. They are beautiful. You know, they were so little known. Practically nothing was known about them because it's so difficult to get to their breeding grounds. Mm-hmm. Little was known about, you know, where they wintered. Uh, when this project started, they were really, really unknown. And now we've got, you know, we've got tagged birds and we're finding out where they're going to and we're learning so much about them. So it is a, a real birder's bird and a real flagship. And uh, it's it's really generated a huge amount of support from the birding community from schools all the way along the flyway as well little yeah. trees, uh, which is absolutely fantastic um, and it's a flagship for the 50 million migratory water birds that use that flyway that flyway is so important for so many species and lots of them are threatened and declining a huge proportion of the world's population live along that flyway as well um, so it's very very threatened and there's a lot of reclamation of intertidal areas so it's and, and tackling things like trapping and loss of intertidal areas is beneficial to a massive number of you know, migratory water birds. Yeah, not also just. to local yeah. communities that use those intertidal wetlands for shell fisheries. Yeah. Because they're really, really valuable resources for local communities as well. So, yeah. Um, um, I wanted to ask as well, I wanted to go back to when you said that WWT has just launched a new strategy and that it takes... It's quite different from the previous one, so I wanted to ask what the new direction is that the organisation is going in, yeah, if, it is, would, if you see it as a new direction. It, it's, I wouldn't say it's a new direction. It's really building on what we've done and right. emphasising other things. So we started off with the threatened species, yeah. and our threatened species work has turned into this truly integrated work, which is about you know habitat restoration and conservation and you know empowering local communities, really, to... To live in a, in a sustainable way that enhances their livelihoods and enhances the natural environment so it's much more about that holistic vision so we we will still when the opportunity is right use a species as the way in but not always sometimes there might be other ways into doing that um, so really focusing on that work overseas um, we're also beginning to do quite a bit of work looking at um, human health and well-being and how wetlands benefit human health and well-being and we've got a very strong background in wetland health and wetland diseases and mm-hmm. the, the one health approach and building on that and looking at a whole variety of ways in which wetlands benefit people not just physically but also psychologically um, because a whole range of you know, habitats are beneficial but there is a special resonance that water has with a lot of people mm, it's incredibly yeah. calming yeah so that's a big thing for us and also um looking at the multiple benefits that wetlands can deliver for society so delivering biodiversity but also reducing flood risk controlling um, pollutants a whole range of different things that wetlands can do for us in different circumstances both in urban areas and rural areas so those are things we've done before but we've got an extra emphasis on those three areas so it's i wouldn't say our strategy is totally new it's just got a new emphasis um so those things are are going to be big drivers for how we move forward over the next few years which is very exciting yeah i mean those two the the health stuff and the other services bid as well uh Mm are both really pertinent to the current political narrative around, you know, promoting the multiple different benefits and values of nature and of different habitats, particularly in the UK at the moment, I suppose. Absolutely. And, you know, managing things at a landscape scale, not just at a small scale. So, you know, flooding happens because of a lot of things that are happening upstream, not just because of what's happening locally. So it's about, you know, properly integrated land management. But there are lots of things that people can do on a small scale as well that make a difference. So my pond there, which yeah. is rather overgrown, I'm ashamed <laughs> to say, you will see this pipe here taking all of the water from my roof 
into a water butt yeah and the overflow i use the water butt for watering the garden the overflow goes under my incredibly wild garden here and fills the pond up and and when the pond overflows it just soaks away so that is a really good way of stopping excess water going down the drains mm. you know producing overload to the drains which can cause you know flooding can cause sewers to overflow and it's creating a fantastic wildlife habitat in my garden I wasn't even thinking of sustainable drainage solutions when I did that. I was just thinking, <laughs> how can I fill my pond up? <laughs> yeah. I've got a free source of rainwater. But it's great. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. And it it's, is. It's an amazingly productive pond full of great crested newts. And... Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, we've got a tiny one, smaller than that in our garden. And we've got frogs in it now. We only put it in over the winter. But I'm hoping that we get newts at some point. And, you know, we've got patches that we, we let, you know areas of long grass that's great for insects and i'm going to put the moth trap out later i think i'm hoping this is going to be the first really good night for moths this year because it's been pretty drab so far we haven't put our moth trap out for ages we should do that as you can see this is a very wild garden we love wild it's beautiful yeah i mean we've got yeah we're sitting in cambridgeshire and it's there are no clouds we've got sparrows being really noisy behind us had a red kite earlier circling over the garden i I saw a red kite earlier as well actually on the drive up here yeah and I did. That was the tack that I wanted to follow. So um, when you talked about um, finding the the person who found that lake with the Madagascan potchards on, mm-hmm. and you know, no one knew they were there. That reminded me of, I think it was one of your colleagues from WWT who did, who did the tweet of the day this morning about the common scoters and finding fifty thousand on the sea. <laughs> that no one knew were there before and they just this flock of common scoters just went on for 20 kilometers or so but i heard your tweet of the day earlier this week as well about the marsh harrier near here and i wanted to ask about you know what what is there on your doorstep here in cambridgeshire and you know particularly as a director of one of the uk's leading conservation organizations how and why is it important to you to build nature and bird watching into into your week and into your life so uh, nature and conservation is my life. Mm. You know, it's I'm absolutely passionate about the natural world. It gives me so much joy and so many people so much joy. So, you know, the natural world is something we all depend upon. It's absolutely essential for livelihoods and the sustainability arguments are really, really important one. But for me, my God, it just makes me happy. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, <laughs> it's incredible. And I love nature in my garden. So everything from the great crested newts in the pond, we feed our hedgehogs. We have hedgehogs every night that come. They love our mealworms and our cranberry crunch and all kinds of things <laughs> that we feed them. Um, and the birds in the garden, what, am I, what do we have? All sorts of different things. So you can see we've got lots of different kinds of bird feeder up. We've got Niger there, which the goldfinches love. So yeah. we have a lot of goldfinches coming there. We've got ordinary bird seed there. We've got peanuts that the great spotted woodpeckers come to. Um, we've got fat balls, we've got everything under the sun. So we get all of the kind of common garden birds. It is absolutely brilliant to see the raptors back. So I moved into this house in 1992, practically no raptors in the area. Yeah. And now, you know, buzzards are breeding down there. So buzzards are really common. Red kites every day yeah. over the garden. Often get marsh harriers passing across. Um, and that is wonderful, having those back. Um, and... We've got some fabulous local wetland reserves, some really, really good wetland reserves. So I was out at six o'clock this morning. So I started work at, you know, sort of half past eight, nine, but I had two and a half hours out at Woodwalton Fen, yep. local nature reserve, yep. two different hides, two different bitterns. Nice. One just sunning itself at the top of the reed bed <laughs> in the first hide and the second one just flying, which was absolutely cracking for yeah. cuckoos. Um, another local nature reserve, um, which is Ooze Fen, where we often see marsh harriers, bearded tits, the good population of bitterns there. I mean, there are Fendrayton is really terrific. I used to bird Fendrayton yeah. quite a lot because I used to live down near Papworth, so Fendrayton was only you it's know brilliant. fifteen it's or really twenty wonderful. minutes drive, and I love it. It's fantastic. Yeah, I really love it too. So there are just so many local na- and lots of the wetland nature reserves. Yeah, which, which is great. And being in a wetland in the early spring, early in the morning when there's no one else there, mm. the sun's rising, the mist is coming up, you know, you're hearing your first warblers uh, begin to, to sing, yeah. you've got cuckoos calling, you're in grasshopper warblers, it's just amazing, I just love it. Uh, and it's so beautiful as well. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's terrific. And, you know, it's a built-up part of the country, and yet it's, it's absolutely magical. Mm. Uh, we, we've had, I mean, here we've got 
Woodhurst is a, it's a little village, it's a ring village. It's exactly a mile around. It's the best preserved ring village in Cambridgeshire. And it used to have ancient woodland all around it and pasture land in the middle. And it's still got some pasture land. And this is a, a really lovely hay meadow, but it's just got big arable fields other than that. Yeah. And yet we get some really great stuff. The village is a bit of a honeypot. So we've even had long-eared owls nesting really? here. We had a young long-eared owl a couple of years ago. Dunk came up, my husband came up one night and just heard one calling. My God, that's a long, and we found it, which was amazing. It's still so one of the birds I haven't seen. we get some great, I mean, it, it was the, the only year yeah. it's, it's nested nearby, but we get some terrific birds. So it's, uh, it's wonderful. And yeah. I love having Mar- Marsh Harrow's one of my favourite birds. <laughs> I got the impression from your sweet of the day that they yeah, might be. I love them. I absolutely <laughs> love them. For me, every spring I have to go out and see displaying marsh harriers. Yeah. You know, it's not spring without that. Yeah. So I just love that display flight. It's magical. Yeah, we were at Lake and Heath Fen the other evening. Um, <clears throat> and we were there to twitch the, the marsh warbler that's mm-hmm. there at the moment, but we had incredible views. I've only really ever seen this at Lake and Heath and nowhere else. I've seen it twice there now, though. Of, two bitterns that were circling together in the air for two oh, or three really? minutes. I've only okay. seen them do that at Lakenheath and not at other sites before, but also, you know, fantastic views of the yeah. marsh areas. And it's a little bit later in the year now, but yeah, in, in the early spring when they're displaying, it's yeah. just, oh, it's yeah, great it's incredible. Reserve. Actually, my husband was there yesterday as well because he, <laughs> he retired a year ago. So now he's really gripping me off with lots of great birds all the time. <laughs> <laughs> was he there for the marsh walker? He was, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, it was, was quite good, I must admit. Behind a whole computer screen. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Lake and Heath is definitely testament to mm. how incredible wetlands can be. And you can, you know, you can create wetlands so quickly as well. I love the rapidity with which they they turn into something which mm. it looks as if it could have been there for 30 years and it's only five years old. It's just yeah. amazing. Well, I'm really excited because on our doorstep at home is... Um, Carlton Marshes, Suffolk Wildlife Trust Reserve, which obviously already exists as a nature reserve, but the the campaign that they're running at the moment to purchase huge new areas of land is really exciting. And you know, like you say, wetlands can transform. You know, within a matter of four or five years, you can yeah. start drawing stuff in. So I'm really excited because in four or five years' time, that's on the doorstep. Absolutely. It's you know, ten minutes bike ride from my house, and it's going to be incredible. And I used to work at Snape on the Suffolk coast as well, which is a bit further inland than Minsmere. Yeah, it's not right on yeah. the coast, so it's not quite so vulnerable to coastal change on the Suffolk coast. But again, you know, the reserve was only only began being developed as a wetland back in 2009, and yeah. I go past it on the train now these days, and it's Fantastic. drawing in all sorts of stuff, marsh harriers, pendulum tits, bearded tits. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's and amazing. Have you been to the London Wetland Centre? No, WWG I've never been. Site? No, oh, that's another place I've got to go. That, you know, that old go. concrete reservoirs. Yeah. And it's an amazing site, and I, yeah. I just think it is so fantastic having that in the middle of yeah. our biggest city. Yeah. It's just incredible, you know. And, it, and in terms of, I guess, psychological health benefits, being able to go to this green, beautiful haven yeah. in the middle of a really big built-up area, oh, that's a fantastic example of a place where you can get away from it all, and um, and it is right on the doorstep of a huge number of people. Yeah. And when I first went there, um, you know, it wasn't that old. But it looked as if it had been there for ages. Mm-hmm. And it's attracted so much wildlife in. And even in the middle of a city, you can do that. Yeah. That's great. Well, that's why I think Carlton Marshes is really exciting. Because, you know, it's not London, but it's right on the edge of Lowestoft. And it's only, yeah. it's, you know, it's not very far from Great Yarmouth, which is another yeah. big population centre. I think, I think looking to the future, we need to, in my opinion, we need to try to deliver lots more of these exciting reserves. Probably, in a Absolutely. lot of cases, particularly wetlands that aren't in the middle of nowhere like Minsmere, as fantastic as it is, yeah. but are actually right on the edge of some of our largest population centres because then they're going to deliver the services that people need, but also the, like you say, the physical and mental health benefits much more easily and for people who can't necessarily get to places Absolutely. that are in the middle of nowhere. And we have got these fantastic big landscape-scale projects. So, yeah. you know, the projects that WWT, RSPB and the Wildlife Trust and a variety of other partners are working on, yeah. uh, Environment Agency, you know, and others, all the way from Wellney down to Fendrate and along the Ewes, yeah. you know, joining up all of those areas. And you've got big centres of population like Peterborough, mm-hmm. um, Huntingdon a bit smaller, but, you know, a lot of people that, that can yeah. access those places and have quite a for this part of the country quite a wild experience which is which is really terrific yeah so yeah mm.
exciting. It's very exciting. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's probably enough. Um, but is there anything that you wanted to talk about or wanted to say that we haven't covered? Or um, was it, were expecting me to ask about that I haven't asked? No, I, I wondered if you might ask me who'd inspired me. You know, oh, yeah, yeah. inspirational... I suppose you've mentioned a few people well. along the way, but yeah, have there been any did. particular people who who have played a particular role in inspiring you? Yeah, I, I, I kind of thought about this, and I thought, this is so hard because there have been so many people, you know? That's, that's the problem that I have <laughs> with that question. It's the issue, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So when I was really young, I guess my biggest inspiration came from Rachel Carson, mm. Silent Spring, because yeah. she was just the most amazing communicator. And communication is so important. I mean, David Attenborough is the, you know, the absolute genius of communication, isn't he? But she was wonderful, and she was such a strong woman. Yeah. She, you know, she was. She had the whole, you know, pesticides industry probably against her at the time. But she was brave, and she was a brilliant communicator, and she moved things on so much. So, she was a real inspiration to me. But. Some of the people that have done developed the really hands-on conservation stuff, like Carl Jones. Okay, uh, that's not Durrell. a name I know. So Carl has has uh, been heavily involved in saving some of the most threatened species on the planet, like Mauritius kestrel, pink pigeon, mm-hmm. whole bunch of different things. Working with with Durrell and with the Mauritian Wildlife Foundation. Uh, do you know Don Merton, who worked with the Department of Conservation in New Zealand, helping save kakapo and Chatham Island black robin? Right. So Don and Carl were my two heroes who'd done this really, I guess the really sexy stuff with some of the most threatened species on the planet. They both brought species back from one breeding female. Right. Which is, I mean, how scary must was that Was Mauritian Kestrel one yeah, breeding was, female? In, yeah, I think it was about 1974. Yeah. There was just one breeding female left. And Chatham Island Black Robin was as well. And were they people you got so, to meet? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. And, yeah. and unfortunately, Don is no longer with us, but he was a... A wonderful, gentle, selfless man, but you know, just these are both people who never give up, who think laterally, who are really brave. Just go out and try it, and if you put that into it, you can usually deliver. Mm. And actually, our head of conservation breeding at WWT, Nigel Jarrett, who's a lot younger, I think is very much in the same mould. He's incredibly brave. He does things that would terrify the life out of me. (laughs) Picking up a spoonbilled sandpiper egg for the first time, one of the most threatened species on the planet. This tiny little wafer thin egg. Nobody's ever had them in an incubator before. And he just, he thinks laterally. He's very creative. So I think he's he's a future Carl Jones and Don Merton for me. So those people, but there are lots of others as well, um, and lots of co- kind of, I guess, lots of ex-colleagues of mine as well that I found really inspirational. Yeah. So Mark Avery, when he was, you know, director of conservation at RSPB yeah. and subsequently, and also Reese Green, who is kind of an awesomely good scientist, <laughs> who yes. I've done a lot of collaborative work with, but um, has always been a real, you know, a bit of a mentor for me, and I've done a lot with Reese and value his opinion massively and um so those people have been a bit of an inspiration and there have just been so many um and you know a lot of tony juniper was was another Mm. person so um a whole bunch really so the list could go on and on (laughs) (laughs) so yeah yeah i noticed as well you mentioned rachel carson um who i've read and thoroughly enjoyed reading and I noticed Barbara Kingsolver on your bookshelf as well yeah who I read some of last year and Mm. yeah absolutely love her writing I do too you know and she writes about such a huge range of subjects but nature and wildlife is part of it and yeah yeah, her writing to me is really inspirational and yeah it was really motivating to read Mm. um what was I reading um it was a collection of her essays I can't remember the name of the collection but yeah i read a collection of her essays last year and i need to go back and read yeah more of her basically yeah she's very good there's some fantastic science writers actually a Mm. book i loved i read oh gosh a very long time ago now the song of the dodo which i think the author is david Quarman. i think so Mm. but it was a long time ago that i read it um and one of my favorite books oh i'm testing myself now trying to remember the title of it um no, T-Rex and the Crater of Doom, which is um, 
think, again, the author is Walter Alvarez. You'll okay. have to check those before you put this online. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, it's the story of why the dinosaurs went extinct. And it's, it's the science, but it's told like a detective novel. <laughs> and it brilliant. is just fantastic. It's gripping, yeah. absolutely gripping. Um, I loved that book. I couldn't put it down. <laughs> I love detective novels. So <laughs> okay. There's a way in which I relax. I can't shut my brain off when I go to bed, so I've always got a detective novel because it just immerses me in something totally different. Yeah. And that helps me go to sleep. But, but I love that kind of science written like detective novels. So, terrific. I think um, one of my... One of the most inspirational conservation books that I've ever read, and it's one that I read recently, is called Mother of God. Okay. by a guy called Paul Rosalie, who... Um, is American but when he was 17 or 18 dropped out of the education system it really wasn't working for him he'd always wanted to go to the Amazon so he just went off to Peru and um, ended up finding this piece of land within the Manu National Park which is called the Madre de Dios the Mother of God um, and you know went into basically uncharted bits of it Um, and you know he did end up going to university but um, every holiday would be back in mm-hmm. Peru visiting this piece of land and you know meeting the people and eventually found out that it was under threat from developers who wanted to purchase it and yeah. you know um, clear huge tracts of it and managed to through friends and contacts raise enough money to save it um, and now he runs his own lodge out there and this guy is 28 oh, 29 he's younger than me and he's just you know <laughs> he's just lived this incredible life so far and almost single-handedly saved this piece of land in the Amazon it's just uh, yeah that was the last conservation book that I really couldn't put down I'm going to have to read that one <laughs> yeah yeah, I recommend it yeah. to everyone I speak to that yeah. sounds great yeah yeah it's really good um, I'm really glad you picked me up on the on the people who've inspired you question because you know I think as you've said throughout you know the connection between people and nature is so important it's not yeah. just about making conservation projects work for people as well it's also that you know with everyone I speak to, mm. their stories are inspiring to others and they very often have got into mm. it, not just because nature has inspired them, but also because they've had help and inspiration from other people along the way. Yeah. And so many people have shown you can actually do it. You can make a really big difference. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. That was really fun. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs>